0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Hopefully you've been with us through this uh, journey we've been taking through the the book of Exodus. We've been walking with the people of Israel uh, through their enslavement and into their uh, redemption. And we saw that last week as we looked at the Passover. We saw God's terrible judgment coming in the 10th plague, and it caused Pharaoh finally to break and to set the people free. And so we're moving from that last week into this week, the, the, the crossing of the Red Sea. It's actually week 18 um, of this series that we're doing in the first half of the book. Uh, I, was, I was feeling... Um, stressed this morning. Uh, yes, it was this morning. Uh, I'm a little behind the eight ball, but I was feeling stressed this morning because um, I kind of remembered this morning that for most of the series I've been saying, we're going to do 22 weeks. It's going to take us to the end of chapter 18. That's a good place to break and we'll go 18 to 40 sometime next year. And then when I was trying to do the math this morning, which I've never been very adept at, I realized that would mean covering about five chapters um, or six chapters between today and next week. And if we tried to do that, you'd probably never come back again. So I asked my chief personal advisor for, um, for some advice. And so I went to India. My, uh, she's six. And, um, and whenever I ask her a question, she goes from six to 36 by doing this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you've got a daughter or have ever witnessed a small girl trying to be adult, this is like, it's instinctive. Mm -hmm. So I said to her this morning, India, what am I going to do? I said that we were going to go to, to chapter 18, but I also said that Jimmy in the first three weeks of December, could have his Jimmy series and he could preach whatever he wanted for three weeks and now we're running out of time. We've only got this week and next week. What should I do? And she said, all right, three things. Number one, make sure you talk to mummy about this because she is your wife. Number two, you are the boss of our church. So if you wanted to, you can tell Jimmy that he's not preaching anymore. (laughs) And number three... You could just like finish what, like finish next week and then come back and do the rest another time. It's pretty good advice. That's why she's my chief personal advisor. I said, Sweetie, you're so right. I am the boss of our church, and I will tell Jimmy that he's not preaching anymore. And no, I said, you're so right, sweetie. You know, we could just come back and do this. We don't have to, I don't have to be stressed about this. We can just do what we can do. And then next year, we'll finish the book. So that's what we're going to do. Next week, we're going to finish this series, week 19. It's at chapter 15. You can read ahead. It's this great hymn of praise to God in response to all that he's been doing, as we've been witnessing over these last... Few weeks, But today I do want us just to focus in on the crossing of the Red Sea. It is an epic event uh, that is sort of even known among people who haven't really grown up going to church. They kind of know that. They might have seen the Disney movie that was made uh, all about that event and it's, it's really echoed throughout history 3,000 years later. So I want to focus on that and I want to ask the question, where do we fit in to this story, this event in, in the history of the people of Israel? Let me just summarise the first few verses to get us into the right context. All right? So in verse 17 through to 22, um, God has his people, he's, they've left Egypt, they've plundered the Egyptians. They're literally ca- carrying the, the jewellery of the Egyptians with them. So great is the conquest of Egypt uh, that they're walking out as free people, uh, but God knows his people well. And this is great news for us. If you're here today and you lack faith like the, Egypt, like the Israelites do uh, and like I do, then you, 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 you can be comforted this morning. God knows about that. We spend most of our time trying to hide our lack of faith from God, like He might be upset with us um, if He knew how little faith we actually have in Him. But actually, He already knows. And He is so gracious with us that He, he, he kind of works with us in our lack of faith um, not in spite, in spite of us rather than uh, because of our lack of faith. And so God sees his people and he sees that they are fresh out of slavery and it's not going to take much to knock them back into slavery. So he says, if they go the short route out of Egypt, they're going to come across the Philistines, uh, that's going to break their nerve. They don't have enough faith to face them. They don't have enough faith in me that I'll deliver them. So God says, we're going to go the circuitous route. We're going to go the long way around. And um, and that that route that takes them the long way around avoids war with the Philistines, but it does put them in the middle of a pretty significant trap. And uh, it's a trap by God's own Design it's, It traps them between the Red Sea and the advancing Egyptians. But in the midst of that, that seemingly dark moment, God is leading them step by step. And so we have this great image of God leading them by day in the pillar of cloud and leading them by night in a pillar of fire. He is very much in their midst, leading them step by step. And, um, and it's interesting the way that the Israelites interpreted this very present help was actually to attribute it to the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you've ever been told the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, isn't in the Old Testament, it's just a New Testament or even a church invention, forget about that. It's actually on the first page of the Bible and continues throughout the Old Testament. The people of God recognize when the Spirit of God is at work among them. So in Isaiah chapter 63, um, Isaiah actually says, do we have that? Isaiah 63 verse 11 to 12. He he is thinking back, right? Hundreds of years back. He says, the people of Israel recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? That's Moses. Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown. See, they knew that this was God's Holy Spirit at work among his people. And it's interesting, when Moses uses the word, various different words for wind and the the cloud and fire and so on, the, 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 the actual manifestations of the environment that split the sea, he's using the same word throughout, which is the Hebrew word ruach, which is a nice word to say, ruach, which means spirit. And so God is doing all of this by the power of his spirit so that he would gain for himself everlasting renown. And I think what we need to know, again, fitting ourselves into this story, we need to know that God is doing the same thing for us today, exactly the same. God knows our weakness and God knows how to... uh, Construct our lives to kind of accommodate those weaknesses, intervening by His Spirit to guide us to the place where He wants us to go. And all of it is for His glory and for our good. So, I find it fascinating and often hard to believe that Jesus said it was better for His disciples to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them than it was for them to have Him beside them. That's almost too much for me to believe. That it's, that it's better for the Spirit to dwell within me as He does now than to have Jesus here with me telling me what to do. And not only is it better for the Spirit to be within us than having Jesus beside us, but it's better as well to have the Spirit within us than to have Him externally guiding us as He was for the people of Israel. And I think many of us can be tempted to think, well, no, give me the cloud. I want the cloud and the fire. I want day and night to have this physical sign pointing me in the right direction. By far the thing that people most ask me to pray for them is that they would know God's will in this or that situation. That's easily the most common prayer people ask me to pray. And so most of us feel that way. Give us a cloud. Give us some fire. Show us the way. But Jesus is really clear about this. He says, no, no, better than that, and even better than having me with you, is the fact that you have the Spirit dwelling within you. We say, so we said that great account of Luke in Acts chapter 2, where, where Jesus sends his Spirit to fill his disciples. And, and he says, As that happens, as the Spirit comes upon them, there's a wind and a fire, just like Exodus. Right, this manifestation of God's Spirit for His glory and for our good. So I want us to focus in now on the actual account of the crossing of the sea. And again, the context here is in the first few verses of chapter 14. Verses 1 to 4 tells us that God had so led them by fire and cloud that, they, that he had sort of planted them, with the sea behind them and the advancing Egyptian army bearing down on them. By any measure, this is a bad move. By any measure, this is a poor military strategy, right? You don't, if you are trying to avoid confrontation with an army far greater than you, you don't position yourself with an impenetrable environmental structure behind you and nowhere to go. But that's what God has done. It's a trap, but it's not a trap for the Israelites. It's a trap for the Egyptians. And in all of this, God is demonstrating that he is the great I am. He is the sovereign Lord, and he will work out his purposes even when it looks darkest even when it looks hopeless. Now, we know all of that to be true, but the people of Israel didn't see it. And so they kind of lose their nerve a little bit in verse 10 of chapter 14. Read with me. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, You've got these people who are terrified, who are trapped, and who are despairing, and it's causing them to say funny but dumb things. Right? Funny because that's a great use of sarcasm. Jewish people are just good at this by nature, all right? All of the best sarcastic Jewish comic, uh, comics are Jews. And so it was from the beginning, in the middle of the desert, they say, was there because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Right, that's, you can laugh at that. That's a joke, Right? There are some jokes in the Bible. You guys don't look convinced. Um, it's especially um, ironic because Egypt is known to this day for its graves, right? That's what the pyramids are. It's famous for its graves. So that you get it on the way home. All right. So they say, why would you do this, Moses? It would have been better for us to, to be slaves, right? Whipped, having our sons drowned. That's better than this. They're terrified. Now Moses has a response to this, and we're going to get to that a little bit later on. When we talk about how this applies to us as, as God's people. But I want to just, just read for you this account, a couple of verses at a time, of the actual crossing of the Red Sea. All right. So take a look, read with me verse 15 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, ruach, spirit, and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on the dry ground with a wall of water on the right And on the left, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. The great army employed by Pharaoh to go around and systematically drown the sons of the people of Israel has now drowned themselves in the Red Sea. It's irritating to have to do this because there's more important things to talk about. But I have to address one thing, which is that uh, for the last 200 years, really 19th and 20th century, there's been this great movement in Christianity, air quotes for you listening online, Christianity. It's not really Christianity, but Christian scholarship that says, you know, we're modern people now. We've figured out that miracles don't really happen. And so we need to read the Bible with without the naivety of ancient people. We need to read it with our modern, educated minds. And so we need to extract all of the miraculous happenings in the Bible and then then we can get to the real truth of the matter. And so there are people who have put forward hypotheses about what's really going on here. It's not obviously, it's not the sea. That would be a miracle if the sea parted into and people walked through the middle of a sea on dry land. So it can't be that. What, what could it be? Well, maybe, and I've heard this put forward in a good church, right, as an option for people to consider. Maybe it's not the Red Sea, maybe it's the Reed Sea, and they're, really, they're walking through reeds, and it's like, a, it's like a, a boggy sort of place, like we have here in Caroline Springs, right? There's, there's some water around, but it's only a couple of inches deep, and, and so the, that, that's what's going on here. They, they kind of they, they walk through some muddy puddles. That's how God delivered his people from the Egyptians. And I, I love this. I, I couldn't help but read this to you in this um, book, which I recommend if you want to go deeper into the book of Exodus Exodus for You. It's part of a series of books written. Um, a For You series of commentaries just for regular people like you and me who don't know Greek, don't know Hebrew, but want to know more about the Bible. And so this is a good one by Tim Chester and he, he, um, he writes this. The pastor Donald Bridge tells the story of a liberal preacher, remember they're the people who deny miracles, a liberal preacher, oxymoron, visiting an African-American church. As the minister talked about the crossing of the Red Sea, someone shouted, Praise the Lord! Taken all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. The minister, who did not believe in miracles, was annoyed at this intervention. So rather condescendingly, he told the congregation that the Israelites were probably in marshland with an ebbing tide. So they were simply wading through six inches of water. In response to this, the same voice as beforehand shouted, Praise the Lord! Drown and all them Egyptians in six inches of water. What a miracle. <laughs> Jews, African Americans are funny people. And it's because they've been persecuted all of their existence. That's why they're funny. You, you, you develop a sense of humor when you've been slaves. Uh, which is also why I've got no jokes, or certainly you guys don't think they're funny, all right? White, middle class, no humour. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, listen, you, can't, you can attempt to squeeze all the miracles out of the Bible, but you're not left with the Bible. You're left with a dead book, all right? So you can't, you can't have it both ways. If you don't believe in miracles... Your post-enlightenment, right? We're modernist now, people now. We, 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 we don't believe in anything that happens outside of what our five, five senses can receive. Then you, you, you can't have the Bible anymore. The Bible isn't for you anymore. You've got to throw your Bibles away. But if you believe that God is who he says he is, that he is the great I am... Then you read accounts like this, and what you're left with is not skepticism, you're left with worship. How awesome is our God? How awesome is his mighty right hand? How awesome is the power of his spirit to drive the sea in two, and then close it over God's enemies? How awesome is our God? And this is obviously the way that God's people interpreted what they knew to be fact, like Many, many years later, Nehemiah said of this event in chapter 9, he said, You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. He says, God, you are so amazing. You work such incredible miracles that your name remains to this day. People don't forget who you are. They are in awe of you. And we know from reading this book, that is what this book is all about. It's about God not making a name for himself as if he didn't have one, but simply showing who he is. I am who I am. It's actually the the response that he gets from the people in the last verse Of our chapter here, verse 31, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. I love that juxtaposition, right? Feared the Lord because he's awesome and awful in the true sense of the word, and trusted him because he's loving and gracious. I love that. So I want to ask the question in the the rest of the time that we've got, how does does our story fit in with this story? Because we've said all the way through, right, Exodus is our story. If you don't understand Exodus, you won't understand the gospel, you won't understand what it is to be a Christian. All throughout the New Testament, right, it's just replete with references to the Exodus. And, and, And we've seen actually that The Exodus isn't the main story. Actually, our story of redemption in Jesus is the fulfillment of that first story. Where that was a shadow, we experience the fulfillment of redemption in Jesus. So how do we fit into this passage? I think it's always important when you try to interpret the Bible... The best you can do, better than reading a commentary or something like that, is to find where the Bible talks about that part of the Bible. Because the Bible interprets itself, right? If you want to know about someone, you ask them about themselves. If you want to know about the Bible, ask the Bible about itself, right? And, and this, is what, this is what Paul says about the Exodus in, in 1 Corinthians 10. In verse 1 to 2, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What he wants the people in the church at Corinth to know and what he wants us to know is that the experience of these people has a a corollary with our experience. So these people were slaves. They were saved from death and judgment in the Passover, baptized as they walked through the Red Sea and set free on the other side. And he says, this is your story, Christians. You were slaves. You were slaves to Satan, sin and death. You are liable to God's judgment and death, but He saved you by the blood of a lamb, His own son. He baptized you in water and set you free on the other side. He says, The people of Israel, what they went through was a shadow of what you have gone through as God, God's people. You were slaves, you were saved, baptized, and now you've been set free. So looking at these people, we see again an echo, I think, of our own experience, right? They've been set free from slavery. They've been saved from God's judgment. They've been baptized and set free. They have these temptations to go back to the slavery. They've got these temptations to go back to the way things were. And so we see when they're faced with the army Let me read this again. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would be better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So they have this, this temptation to want to go back to the way things were. And I think if we're honest, we can relate to that. Like if you think about your life when you're in slavery to those things slavery to sin, Satan, death that is slavery to the ways of this world that. Honestly, it was kind of preferable to a lot of my experience as a Christian, someone who's been set free. right? Because then at least I could be consumed with serving myself. Then at least I could take the money which was rightfully mine and spend it on myself. No one was calling me to give generously to the church and to the poor and, and those in need. right? I could just do what I wanted. No one was telling me that I couldn't, I don't know, wake up on Saturday morning and start drinking at 9 a.m. No one, was, no, no one had a problem with that. It's the weekend. Do what you want. Now, the Bible says to me, do not get drunk on wine because it leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Right? That's worse than this. Seeking to be filled with the Spirit and not getting drunk feels I don't know, like a worse deal than getting drunk. It just does. Ironically, often being free feels like more of an enslavement than slavery. Often God leads us around the long way and into traps and dangers for his glory and for our good. But in the midst of that trial, it's easy to think, I'd rather be in Egypt. Being a slave is better than this. And that's what, that's what the people of God have come to. They've come to that conclusion. It would have been better for us to stay there. And just think about what that means. That means your son's being drowned. That's better than this. I didn't say it's logical. I just think it's understandable. It's not logical to think that it's better to get drunk than be filled with the Spirit, but it's understandable. I told you that Moses had a response to this, and this is what I want to focus on in the rest of our time. All right, so verse 13 to 14 Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So, three things that he said to those people then that they needed to hear in the midst of that chaos the same three things that we need to hear today. Three things. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And be still. All right, so first of all, do not be afraid. I've quoted you before from, uh, I think it's called a short history of thought, Luke Ferry, or... Luc Ferry, that's my French, Luc Ferry, he's a French atheist philosopher, and I find him to be a very engaging writer, I think he's great. Uh, He wrote this book about sort of the history of Western philosophy, and he said, every philosophy and religion has been constructed in order to solve the problem of death and judgment. He said, everyone inevitably dies and everyone has a sense that they should pay for the way that they've lived. So death and judgment is a real reality for everyone who's self-conscious. And so he says, every philosophy and, and religion is sort of trying to answer that question, deal with that reality. So that fear becomes a sort of constant companion of anyone who... Tries to come to terms with the reality of life. And so the fear that these people, that the Egyptians are facing here, is very real. I mean, it's fear of the imminent threat of the Egyptians, but it's also fear at their state before God, right? We know that He saved us then, but will He save us again? That's a real fear. We know that just last night he saved us from death and judgment, but will he do it again? Can we trust God? And, and so this is what Moses is saying to the people, you can trust him. And we saw the last verse of this chapter, the result of all of this, the people trusted him. Now, sitting in judgment over these people, I can say, well, they should have known better. God had just delivered them from death and judgment, right? They should have been killed in the 10th plague, and they weren't. God provided a way for them through a substitute dying in their place. He was gracious to them. They're not dead now because God loves them and saved them. So they should know that he will do it again, but they are failing to trust that he'll do it again. I don't know if this is your experience, but I've I got to tell you, this is my experience. I don't doubt that God has saved me in the past. I just don't always believe that he'll do it in the future. So what Moses needed the people to know then, and what I think he wants us to know now, is that because... God saved us then he will save us when we fear his judgment when we fear his condemnation when we, when we feel the reality of what we deserve we're never actually in danger of experiencing death and judgment so Paul says it the best in Romans 8 verse 1 and 2, here's one to uh, remember, especially when Satan, right, whispers his condemnations to you constantly. He's an accuser of the brethren. He does it day and night, right? So when you hear his little annoying, irritating voice condemning you for your sin, remember Romans 8 1, therefore there is now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Exodus language. You've been set free. You're not in bondage in Egypt anymore. Jesus has set you free. He has taken the punishment you deserve, baptised you and set you on your way on the other side of the Red Sea. Your enemies have been drowned in the waters of baptism and therefore there is now no condemnation for you. That's good news. That's why you need not be afraid. So don't be afraid is one. Second, stand firm. So right, we've got the Egyptian, we've got the Israelites. They're standing with the Egyptians bearing down on them. The Red Sea is at their back, and Moses says, "Stand firm." They might be tempted to surrender, right? If you have those those chariots racing towards you, the greatest army in the world at this point, and you're a bunch of former slaves, with women and children and goats, right? There's not a lot of security there. There's a temptation to just run and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, take me back. Surrender. But Moses says, no, 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 stand firm. Stand firm. Like the people of Israel, we have an advancing army that's facing us. We have a powerful enemy that's arrayed around us, taunting us, closing the gap. It's not an army that we see, it's not one of flesh and blood, but it is a powerful army and it is arranged in our midst. And I think if God would just allow us to see it, we'd probably just just freak out. Some of us would faint. Some of us would say, we don't want to be Christians anymore. We want to join that team, right? We, we would lose our minds. So because he knows our weaknesses, he doesn't allow us to see it most of the time. When I became a Christian, I got to see a little bit of it, and it scared the hell out of me, right? And I've told you before, for a year after I became a Christian, I didn't sleep with the light off because I was too scared of what was there. And what is there is our enemies of Satan, sin and death. They are the emissaries of the devil and they are at work to bring us down. And so just as Moses told his people to stand firm in the face of that enemy, so Paul tells us as the church to stand firm. In Ephesians chapter 6, this is what he says. Verse 12, he describes our enemy, our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, because you live in this day and age, like the liberal preacher, you everything in your mind just says no, but not really, <laughs> right? It's I think. Paul is speaking metaphorically about our struggle with self-esteem or something. No. He's talking about demons, right? And he's saying, don't be unaware. This is what's going on, right? This is reality. Every time you're tempted to do something which takes you away from discipleship with Jesus and into the realm of the evil one... These powers are at work. And every time you choose to stay with Jesus and forsake the temptation, then you're walking in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, by the fire and by the cloud. And so he says, in the midst of that reality, verse 13, next verse, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after, having, after you have done everything, to stand. He says, clothe yourself with the gospel. Know the gospel so well. Know Jesus' victory over his enemies so well, so that in the midst of that war, you can stand firm. You don't go running towards the enemy and saying, oh, okay, I'll be friends with you guys now. I'll do whatever you want. No, you stand firm with the conquering king. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. And be still. Be still. I hear that Injunction, that command to, to be still, and all I can see is really cheesy Christian coffee mugs and posters, right? You get at Kurong bookstore or whatever, like, be still. It's just, just platitudes, right? Christian platitudes that have nothing for you. Like, I'm in the midst of a war surrounded by demons. I need something more than just be still something more than bumper sticker like let go and let god you yeah. know jesus take the wheel what like just useless on their own they're useless you need to know the substance you need to know the promise in order to have any help by these things and so i think the substance of this 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 command to be still it's not a command to, to abdicate responsibility, like acquiesce, right? It's not, people love be still, let go and let go because they think, oh, I don't have to do anything now. Oh, I wasn't going to do anything anyway, so that's, now they'll have a verse to go with that. It's not an injunction to be lazy or to let go of responsibility. To be still is to take seriously the responsibility that God has given you and not more than that. Let me say that again. To be still is to take seriously the responsibility that God has given you and not more than that. To be still in God's presence is to understand what he's called you to do. To acquit yourself well and then leave the rest to him. So I'll give you some examples. I know that God has called me to be a responsible parent. I know that he's called me to love my children and to disciple them. He hasn't given me responsibility over their actions. See the difference? As parents, you can kill yourself with guilt over the actions of your children, particularly if you're a Christian parent here with grown-up children who have walked away from the Lord, right? You can spend your whole life tearing yourself up with guilt because you didn't do enough And what you need to know is you have to be still. You need to know God gave you a responsibility to raise your child. You're not responsible for their actions. Same goes with your vocation. You're responsible to acquit yourself well in your vocation, to do the best that you can with the gifts that God has given you. You're not responsible for what your boss does. In evangelism, you're called to share the gospel Be an emissary of the kingdom of God, right? An agent of reconciliation. To go out into the world and announce the good news. That that thing that everyone has always felt throughout the history of the world, that they deserve death and judgment, that that need not be the outcome for them because Jesus has died in their place, right? You're given the responsibility to share that news. You're not given the responsibility for the outcome. What the person does with it whether they become a Christian or not. That's God's responsibility. So to be still is to execute your ministry and then leave the rest to God. This, is, this has changed my life. I, I mean, I came to this late. Right? I'm a slow learner. And I, my first couple of years at this church, I burned myself down trying to be God, right? I... I burned myself to the ground because I was doing the ministry that he called me to do and trying to do his job of salvation and sanctification. So that every time I met with someone and they said, oh, I'm really struggling, I've been looking at porn a lot, I'd be like, What am I doing wrong? Why aren't these people perfect? And it turns out that trying to be God is exhausting. After I preached the 9 o'clock sermon this morning, I went after I preached and sat down and just thought, I am such a waste of space. That was a terrible, terrible sermon. This is a very common experience for preachers if you've ever done this. It's like all those demons that Paul was talking about, wait until you've said amen and sit down, and then they just pile on top of you, right? Stacks on the preacher, and just. And so I was just like, oh man, what a waste. And then I remembered the thing that I said to everyone else five minutes earlier about taking responsibility for the, the responsibility that God has given you and leaving the rest to Him. And then I thought, oh, I and I spent a fair bit of time trying to understand the passage, and I. A fair bit of time praying that God would show me what the people needed to hear from it, and so actually, everything from now on is God's responsibility. Huh, that's God being still. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid because all of the death and judgment you deserve has already been poured out on Jesus so there's no condemnation for you anymore. Stand firm because you have an enemy and it's a powerful one but Christ has overcome all of our enemies. And be still. Do that which God has called you to do and leave the rest to him. And all of that manifests itself in in an awesome awesome passage of scripture, which I'm willing to say is, oh, it's definitely in the top five passages in the Bible. And it's the manifesto for every Christian here who believes all that we've been saying today. Forget, let go and let God. It's not in the Bible. Replace it with this passage that I'm going to bless you with now. So if you want to bow your heads I'm just going to, I'm going to read this over us. I'm not even going to pray at the end, alright? This is just going to be my word of blessing for you and then we'll stand and we'll sing together. This is Romans chapter 8 verse 31 to 39. Receive this. What then? Shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons,